So let's go ahead and jump back into this. The thing that we see in this question, as we said uh, last week, is that it applies all across different parts of theology. So let's remind ourselves, and can I ask somebody, and it's printed on your sheet as well, can I ask somebody to read question and answer 23? I can see you, Connor. That's why you never look up. You never do eye contact because now you're the man. Would you please? All right. Thank you, Connor. As we saw last week, what the whole idea of this question does is introduce this idea of prophet, priest, and king as offices that Jesus fulfills. And what we want to do and have been doing last week with that chart is we show you that this is not something that's introduced with the coming of Christ, but that the idea of a prophet, priest, and king extends from the very, very beginning. In fact, it's, it's uh, built into the warp and woof of our human nature. So just by way of review, when we look at the first block in your diagram, we saw that when God created man, as we were originally before the fall, uh, we get in catechism question, um, we did this last time, uh, was it question 10? I always forget. Um, yes, question 10, it tells us that man was created in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. And what we see in the chart is that corresponds with prophet, priest, and king. Let's just briefly remind ourselves, when we talk about a prophet, here we go, sheets, is that what we're looking for? Oh, great, thank you. When we talk about a prophet, despite the fact that today that is, um, uh, ten, tends to be used to refer to somebody who can foretell the future, that's not what the, the, the meaning is in Scripture. The prophet is the person who brings the Word of God and who's able to reveal to us true knowledge. Okay, so there's a prophet. The priest is the person who engages in a relationship between God and man, the one who's a mediator. And the king, of course, is a ruler. And so when man was created in the garden, he was created with knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. Knowledge, if you look at how that lines up with the prophet, we were able to understand everything because our minds were clear and un unfallen. Righteousness, uh, let me just distinguish here. Some folks sometimes, I think I had a question last week, what's the difference between righteousness and holiness? Remember, righteousness is your standing before God. Are you righteous or unrighteous? That's why, for example, in the New Testament, as we will look at it later in this catechism, uh, the idea of being justified, the idea that God gives us the righteousness of Christ that word justified, even though in English doesn't sound at all like righteousness, in the New Testament, those two words are the exact same words, just the same, same root. And so when you are justified, you are made righteous, declared righteous, uh, that kind of thing. So it's your standing with God. Holiness is your actual behavior. You're being set apart in the way that you behave and so on. So you can see how those correspond. Man, in his perfect knowledge as a prophet, Man, uh, in his right standing, was righteous, so his standing was right. As a priest, his relationship with God. And then as a king, was he able to execute and do the things that God called us to do? Yes, in his holiness, he was in that regard set apart. When man fell, 
Instead of knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, we get ignorance, guilt, and sinfulness. So all this was by, is just by way of review from what we looked at last week. So man is no longer able to think clearly and able to understand God. Uh, he is no longer righteous. Instead, he is guilty. And he is no longer set apart in his behavior. He is, in fact, sinful. So that is prophet, priest, and king as we see it manifest even in our creation and then sadly in our fall. Now, again, by way of review, when we come to the nation of Israel, God says when he, uh, even as he curses Adam and Eve, he promises that there will be redemption. And we see that redemption begin to play out later in the same book of Genesis. So with the coming of Abraham, and again, we won't look up all the references. We did that last week. But we see that Abraham was prophet, priest, and king. He exercises all three roles. Why? Because in Abraham, you have the beginning of the Israelite race, of the Jewish people. So there aren't enough people. And for, one, for a while, Abraham is all of Israel, as it were. And so everything is in him. In that regard, he is a type. He is a forerunner of what Jesus would be. Of course, he is uh, rather imperfect in that role, but he is prophet, priest, and king. And you'll remember uh, last week we looked at all the different passages that illustrate how he fulfilled all three of those functions. But once, of course, Abraham has children and Israel grows and becomes a people, by the time that it's a people, those offices break out into distinct individuals. So we looked at Moses as the epitome of the true prophet in Old Testament Israel. We saw how Moses was the only prophet who God spoke with face to face, with whom we met with. You know, remember he comes down the mountain and his face is glowing, right, in Exodus 18 and so on. Um, so he is the one prophet that is the true prophet of Israel in that regard. Uh, there doesn't mean that there aren't others. But he is that epitome. And yet, in Deuteronomy 18, we see that even then, there's a promise that there is one to come who is the greater and the final prophet. We looked at David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, and we saw that God made, uh, uh, well, uh, before we get to David, and you get the, uh, the brother of, Aaron, uh, of Moses, Aaron. Aaron and his children would become the priests of the people. And so their line would be that. But it's always the sons of Aaron. Aaron is the epitome, the highlight of that priest who mediates between God and man. The people can't um, uh, uh, approach God. Remember, they're at the mountain. The mountain shakes and quakes. And all this idea of showing that God is, is in the right use of the word awesome and terrible. I'm using that in the right uh, use of the words. There is awe and there is terror at the very majesty and greatness of who God is. Uh, not terrible as in he's bad, which is the way we tend to use the word now. It's lost its, its original meaning. Um, so the people can't approach God. This is a holy God. They're an unholy people. And so you need the high priest who is the mediator, who stands between them, who makes intercession and sacrifice for them, all that. And then David uh, is the epitome of the king. Uh, all the other kings throughout the whole history of Israel and then later Judah all look back and they're all measured by whether they lived up to how their father David uh, was king. And yet even then in Second Samuel 7 and later in David's own writings, it's clear that there is another king to come, one who would be the final king uh, and so on. So those are the things that we, that we see uh, throughout all of Israel, that distinction of the three offices 
of uh, prophet, priest, and king. And then we left off last week at looking how, G- how, how Jesus, when he comes, he is the, uh, uh, the one who fulfills all these offices. But as we said last week, so let's take a look at that again. He doesn't just fulfill these during his earthly ministry. He fulfills them and continues to fulfill them even now. This, this will be his role for all time. So if you look at even, let's start with his earthly ministry just by way of review. He is the living word of God who reveals to us the word of God. And as we talked about last week, and again, I won't go into all the detail, it's not just that he speaks the word of God and like one of the prophets, passes on the word of God, but he himself being God, everything that he said was revelation. Everything that he did was revelation. It's one of the reasons why we do not when we, we take the second commandment seriously and we do not make images of Jesus or try to portray him, um, that's historically been um, what, the, what the church has done, uh, reformed churches, and it's because even his very motions and actions are revelation. His very life is very being. So he brings to us the word of God. He is the prophet. He is the priest because he both mediates between God and man, Right? Uh, we get First Timothy 2, 5, it tells us that he is the only mediator, only. The key thing whenever we talk about Mary or any of the saints, and you hear people sit there and say, oh, no, we don't worship her, we venerate her. Yes, venerate is just a Latin word for worship. Oh, well, we don't worship or venerate, we just pray to them and ask them to, to speak to God for us. Yes, yeah, that's called mediation. That's uh, called intercession. And... Um, it tells us in First Timothy 2, 5 that there is only one mediator, and that's Jesus. Not only does he mediate in that regard in that he is our, I mean, not only is he the priest in that regard in that he is our mediator, but he himself becomes that sacrifice that we owe God uh, that, you know, is necessary. So um, historically, yeah, historically Reformed churches would have said that that would not be appropriate because we are in some way depicting uh, part of that revelation. Um, I remember some of you have heard me talk about David McWilliams. The church uh, that he served at had come out of a dispensational and um, just a much more broadly evangelical background. And um, it had begun moving in reformed directions, ended up joining the PCA, and then he came on about three years or four years after that. And so he began teaching, and, and like any good teacher, he doesn't just arrive day one and expect everything to turn around. So it took him about 15 years, but he was preaching through the Ten Commandments, and they had a stained glass window behind him, and it's Jesus holding a lamb, you know, a little shepherd's crook and all that. And as he taught, and he, if anybody's ever, and I know David McWilliams has taught here uh, when he used to uh, be closer to the area, so you, some of you may still remember hearing him and so on preach. And, you know, he's very gentle in his approach and so on. But just to watch him teach, and I think he did like two Sundays, if I remember correctly, on every one of the commandments. He didn't try to do them all. So it was probably on the second Sunday where he had built up his case and so on. And he just gently turned there and said, brothers, this is sin. (laughs) But it was done in such a way that, you know, had he just shown up there and shocked, you know, people that, you know, the new pastor or whatever, and said, yeah, that's got to come down. Oh, you heretics, you know, and oh, no, he just, uh, it was done so naturally. And so somebody had given a gift to the church. Uh, the church had been built in the 50s. This is now the 90s. 
to renovate and to just kind of freshen up, you know, everything and whatever. And so they went ahead and, you know, painted the pews a different color and did this and did that and looked really nice. Somehow that just kind of disappeared. It went away. It, uh, they just replaced it with some other nice things and some people didn't even notice it. You know, so I would say that that would be less than ideal. Um, and then when we get to Jesus as king of kings, as the king, he fulfills that office. You see him exercising his authority during his earthly ministry, right? His authority over human beings, his authority uh, over uh, creation, nature, uh, right? Quieting the wind and the waves, his authority over the spirit world. Uh, he controls the demons and so on. So we see him acting in that, um, uh, that regard as in that office during his earthly ministry. But where we just left off last week uh, was where we talked about he continues to do that in even his continuing ministry now. Uh, he continues to, rev- uh, to speak to us, not reveal new word to us, but speak to us and bring the word to us. It is the word of Christ. Uh, his Holy Spirit illumines in our minds and works in our, in our hearts. Uh, interestingly, the second, uh, you know, confessions, um, the Westminster Confession, if you're from the Reformed tradition as opposed to Presbyterian, the Belgic Confession, the Heidelberg, those were not the first and only confessions. Uh, there was a lot of folks who were working through many different confessions, depends, and they're all like region, regional because, you know, back in those days, it wasn't like everybody was interconnected on the internet and so on. So you've got the French Confession, the Belgic that I just mentioned, um, the Genevan. Then you have one that's called the Swiss, except the word Swiss doesn't come until much, much later. Uh, so it's still called, even today, by its original name, the Helvetic Convention. Uh, Helvetic, you know, just means Swiss. And so uh, it gets redone much later by a guy called Bullinger. If you were in our officer training class, you know who Heinrich Bullinger is, because we just discussed him very briefly. But Bullinger uh, does the second Helvetic Confession. He's got a great section. Oh, he doesn't do it. He superintends it, him and others. There's this great section in there that reminds us and points out that when a preacher is faithful, it is Christ himself who preaches. That's who you're hearing. So in that regard, Christ continues in his role of prophet. By the way, if that throws you, when I say Christ himself, take a look at Romans chapter 10 sometime. Uh, We probably don't have the time to do it today, but you know the passage that says, uh, how can they believe unless they have heard? And how can they, you know, hear unless, you know, one comes and brings the word of God to them and so on. And almost all the translations, sadly the ESV included, says, how can they believe in him whom they have not heard? Or of whom they have not heard or something like that is how the ESV does it. Uh, the idea is, like, you know, how can you believe unless you've heard of Christ from your preacher, right? That, or whoever's speaking. Um, that's not in the original text. In the original text, it literally says, how can they believe him whom they've not heard? As if he himself is speaking directly. And I happened to be in the building when the translators were going over that section and arguing, and Ed Clowney came in there and argued, some of you might know that name, argued for um, leaving, the, leaving it as is, but they did what all the other translations do, and they changed it to, they changed it to of whom you've not heard, because it's, they, they can fathom, how do we explain that? It's, you explain that Jesus himself preaches to the works in the second Helvetic Convention. Anyway, the point is, that's how Jesus continues even now, being our prophet. He is our priest because even though there's one final sacrifice, he continues to intercede for us. 
and he is our king. Even now he sits on the throne of heaven and he rules over all things. So that is Jesus today. Now, this continues even into our own lives because if you think about it, Jesus as the perfect human being is fulfilling what we as human beings were meant to be. So if we were meant to be prophet, priest, and king, Jesus is the perfect and the, the epitome of the prophet, priest, and king. So he will always be the exemplar. He will always be uh, uh, the supreme one of the, you know, in, that, in, in each of those offices. But what happens when we are converted? What happens when we become believers? We regain. The whole idea of our salvation is to restore us to what was lost, right? So if you look at your line there on conversion, you'll see again that it is a restoration. If you look at prophet, priest, and king, we're being restored to knowledge, restored to righteousness, restored to holiness. Now, this chart, which I got from uh, G.I. Williamson, some of you have heard me talk about him. I really like G.I. Williamson and how he easily breaks things up. Uh, he puts it as knowing, feeling, and desiring which maybe the feeling part is not the best in communicating you know, priesthood, but look at what he's getting at here, is that for you to become a believer, all these things have to happen. You have to know something, right? For you to be a believer, you have to understand something of your own sin. Uh, you have to understand what God requires of you, that's law. You have to re- understand the gospel that Jesus has uh, uh, made, uh, uh, fulfill the law in your place, right? So there has to be a certain amount of knowledge. There are certain things that you have to know. You have to exercise that knowledge. That's not enough. You have to be righteous. Your standing with God has to change. Now, the way he put it here, and this is the one part where I think is a little weak in his, um, in the way he broke up the chart. I think it's simply enough to say you recognize your need for, for your standing with God to change. And that standing, of course, changes through Christ. We get his righteousness, not our own. He puts it as you have to feel your need for Christ. Um, I, and I'll tell you why he, he, he uses the word feel in just a moment. And I think he's, where he's going is correct. It just doesn't look very good here. And then uh, you have to act on it. You, you're, that kingship aspect of that our behavior lines up, you have to act on it. It's not just simply enough to say, I recognize that I'm a sinner. Uh, I recognize that Christ is the answer. You have to actually believe in him, trust in him. And in one sense, you know, it's an act of the will. And that's where he has that uh, as accept the free offer of the gospel. I think he's absolutely correct in that all those steps have to happen in in a true conversion. You have to know certain things. You have to see your need or, as he puts it, feel your need. And then you have to act on it. It has to be an act of the will of actively trusting in Christ, which results in a change in your behavior. So that as a believer, uh, all three of these things now come into place. Never perfectly in the sense of, like, our knowledge is not perfect. We're still fallen. But we are able to see things and understand things. Doesn't Paul talk about that again and again? That unbelievers, they're like veiled. They literally can see the gospel in front of them and yet they don't really ever see they can't ever get through it i've said before you can have a um you know a highfalutin professor uh sitting at union seminary or whatever 
and the person's been studying scripture for 40 years, but if he's not a believer, and it's sad that many, many of these professors of religion are not believers, uh, they still don't see the message. Uh, I've been listening to a series of lectures from a very well-known New Testament scholar. I'm still debating whether he's a believer or not. He has these little moments where he says something that might just sound, and these are not evangelical guys. This is, uh, I won't say who it is, but... um, yeah, you know, I've heard others who completely miss the message uh, of what's in, uh, you know, what's in Scripture. But some little old lady from the backwoods of, you know, Tennessee, uh, who's got no instruction and never finished high school, but she's a believer, she gets it because that veil has been removed. Uh, so the point is you are now restored to your knowledge. You're also restored to your righteousness, not your own Romans 3, right, makes very, very clear that that righteousness is an alien righteousness. Alien doesn't mean extraterrestrial. It means outside of yourself. That righteousness from the outside that comes from Christ that covers us. And, of course, you're restored to holiness. You begin to, the very word saints, right? Saints is not Mary and Joseph and, you know, Patrick as a Friday. We're all saints. All throughout the scripture, Paul addresses uh, these saints, all of us, those who are set apart, those who are holy, our behavior changes. God has set us apart, and there is to be a change in who we are and how we live. So even in your conversion, there is these office, these three aspects of the offices of prophet, priest, and king. Does that make sense? So this was new. This was, uh, the rest had been up to uh, now um, review. Before I move on to the last one, is this good? Are we questions on this? Last week when we had daylight savings time and you were all sleepier, you had more, more comments. But okay. Let's spend the, well, the, the remainder of our time looking at this last one, which is the one that really takes up some time. And that's to say that even in a church, you see the office of prophet, priest, and king. And there have been uh, some folks that have tried to shoehorn. Oh, oh, wait, wait, before we do that, let me go back to Conversion. And you may want to write this into your charts. And I think, Matt, you were showing me that we wrote this somewhere. I spoke about this. When was it I spoke about this? I didn't question 10. I just amazed myself. I just keep saying the same things. Okay, I can't imagine that I remembered all that back then, but I did. Um, When we talk about, if you look at the the conversion thing of uh, knowing, feeling, and desire, this is why... uh, G.I. Williamson used the word feeling because what he's saying is that when we are restored, what we're really restoring is three, there's three terms that we can use. And uh, you'll recognize at least one of these. Orthodoxy, right? This church's denomination, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, I know that doesn't sound, that sounds very lame. Nowadays, all churches have to have descriptions of the door, the table, the porch, Nobody has the loo. I, I mean, I, you know, I don't... If you're going to have all the other aspects of a house... Okay, nobody has that. But, you know, this was a word that actually is an important word. Anybody know what it means, literally? Uh, right belief. I think uh, original, um, maybe not as much, but... Um, so I was going to say, actually, what it literally means... The word ortho, you guys know, orthopedics, orthodontics, what does that mean? 
Uh, no, but I can see why you say that because orthopedics, when we talk about orthopedics, um, we're talking about straight bones. And orthodontists, right, orthodontics, straight teeth. So the word, or, say again? Yeah, the word ortho means straight, right? Or, or right, put in its right position. But the idea is straight, it's, it's no longer uh, malformed. Yes, it's correct. Yeah, but it literally means straight, but the, the meaning is correct, right. Right as in correct and not right as in left. Now, doxy does not mean knowledge because that's where your guys are saying straight knowledge, correct knowledge, right belief. It literally is the word for worship. Um, so literally it means right worship. But behind it is this idea of you worship. In fact, those you who are in officer training, you act as you believe. What you believe affects how you worship. So uh, orthodoxy means that we are restored to our right belief or right thinking. So neo just means new, just means new. And, uh, the man, and you're referring to a movement called neo-orthodoxy. It is about 100 years old. Karl Barth was a Swiss-German theologian. And Karl Barth was a believer, but uh, he was not convinced in the inspiration of the scripture. Uh, yes, it is possible to, to be inconsistent. And he was inconsistent. And uh, in the 1900s, 1910s, there was a real full all-out assault. We call it the modernist movement. Today it's just liberal theology. But the idea that the word of God was not some, you know, God spoke from on high, inspired word, but just man's writing. And it was full of inconsistencies and all that. And nobody believes in miracles because now we're scientific in 1900. We're not going to believe that men walk on water or that they're raised from the grave and all that silly stuff. So the view of scripture was plummeting and um, because science... Like if, and you can connect the dots today. It's the misuse of science. It's not real science, but okay, you get the idea. And so Karl Barth uh, wanted to rescue the Bible. So his premise was, okay, so we can't say it's inspired because, yeah, that doesn't work. Uh, we all know that science has shown conclusively that it's not true. But I still want scripture to mean something and be the word of God. So he came up with this little novel theory uh, it's called neo-orthodoxy. In other words, the new right thinking. And what he claimed is that the Bible is, is fallible, prone to error, a human document. Uh, you can find all sorts of inconsistencies and everything. But when you open it and read it, then God uses it and the Holy Spirit at that moment turns it into the word of God so that it means something to you. Now you can see all sorts of problems with that. Uh, the same thing could happen. God could choose to do that while you're reading the back of the cereal box while you're eating. Those words can become the word, of, and there's all sorts of other problems. But neo-orthodoxy is now the standard way of thinking in most uh, liberal churches that have not completely jettisoned the Bible. Any, any that um, still pretend that the Bible has relevancy do it under the label of neo-orthodoxy. It's very easy to shoot down. I just gave you one of them, but that's very, very easy. Okay, so orthodoxy is right thinking, not neo-orthodoxy, orthodoxy. But then right feeling. We are restored to a right feeling. Anybody know what that's called? Go ahead, Matt, you're looking at your notes. Uh, yes, pathos, from the word pathetic. 
You know, the word pathetic does not mean, oh, you're so sorry, you're so lame. You know, of course, the word lame is also misused, but uh, the word pathos just means feelings. You know, you talk about, oh, the pathos of the situation, that kind of thing. So right feeling. This is what your redemption does to you, it restores to you to finally be able to feel right about it, to be horrified at the things that are truly worth being horrified, to feeling joy about those things that you should feel joy about. You know, you feel joy at who God is. Before we hated God, we, 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 we recoiled at the thought of God. And we embraced wrong behaviors and thought that they were joyous, and then now we detest them. And then the last one, how you behave, right? Your, your will is what's being changed. We call that orthopraxis. Praxis is the same root word behind practical and practice and practicum and so on. It's right behavior. So this is what G.I. Williamson was trying to um, capture, is that your conversion restores you to right thinking, right feeling, and right behavior. Not perfectly. That's the process of sanctification that will only be fulfilled uh, uh, or, or rather completed at you know the, our moment of death or when Christ returns. But there's your conversion. All three of those things put back. <clears throat> but yeah, then we get to, so is that good? Any questions about that? Comments? Uh, no, no, no. Uh, knowledge? Prophet? Priest? Um, thinking? Your behavior. So the kingship, you know, is the idea that you, remember uh, in, in, in the Old Testament, and we talked about this last week, but just by way of reminder, in the Old Testament kingship, what was required of the, of the king? You read it, it's only one thing. It's that he obey the law. That's it. That he live according to what God's will is. You remember, he used to make one copy of the word of God for himself, a personal copy, and he used to read that and act in accord with it. And if he does that, he'll be a perfect king. It's as simple as that. Okay. Prophet, priest, king. Yes, because it, the idea is that your act of the will, your desire is an act of what you desire to do. That's what he, I think, meant by that. Your, I would have put will in there. Your will changes, right? Uh, and sometimes you hear me when I'm talking about how you never have done anything you didn't want to do. And you hear me say that, you know, you always act according to your inclinations, wants, and desires. I think that's what we're talking about. Your, your will, what you desire, what you want to do is changed. Now you want to do what's right according to God's word. You're able to know what God's word because up here. And the very last thing that we look at is this idea of the true church. And um, some people have tried to shoehorn into this, this idea that the offices of the church um, uh, correspond to those. And so uh, they'll say that ruling elders are like the king, which kind of makes sense because ruling elders rule. Uh, that is to say, they shepherd, they oversee, and so on. And then that the, that the minister, and it separates here, minister from ruling elder, which I think is the first problem with this whole thing, but it separates that and then says the minister is then the prophet because he speaks the word of God. And then it looks at deacons and makes them the priests. And there the whole thing kind of really gets very stretched. You're really stretching the concept, I think, far beyond 
um, to perhaps, uh, you know, I, I, is it true that the priests in the Old Testament uh, did mercy? Yes, that's true. The Levites, particularly. But I think it's pushing it a little bit to, I think the much better ones, the, the better way of looking at this in terms of the church is what's in your, uh, your handout there. And that is what are known as the marks. Can I, can I go ahead and erase this? Well, actually, you know what? You've got it right, I don't have to write it. You've got it right there on your chart. Historically, the church has been defined by what are called the marks of the church. Now, the marks of the church are not the characteristics of the church. Don't mess those up. Character, so we're going to do a little lesson here. But characteristics of the church has historically been understood by all the different communions as being one holy Catholic and apostolic. We say that in the Nicene Creed and it has the word Catholic in it. Ah, Out a window and we go. The word Catholic is fine. It's a good word. It's more than universal. That's why we don't surrender it. We'll have to talk about that some other time, maybe um, during uh, coffee and questions. Uh, The word means more than just universal, which a lot of people are trying to plug it in. But the one holy Catholic and apostolic are the characteristics of the church. And if we were to look at those, which we will later, uh, as we go to the catechism, oh wait, I'm supposed to bend down. Isn't that how our esteemed president does it when he whispers at you? Which we'll do later. Um, say again? <laughs> uh, we won't talk about that. Uh, there's, that's the only creepy thing that he did. Um, we will deal with that, but I'm just trying to say right now, let's set that aside. One holy Catholic and apostolic are the characteristics. The marks, the marks of the church are used as a way of distinguishing what is a true church. And that's why in your handout it says a true church. The question had come up amongst uh, the theologians, how do we recognize if a church is true? And so you look for these three uh, behaviors. And the first one is the faithful preaching of the word of God. Is the church faithfully preaching? You can see how that corresponds with prophet. It's the role of taking the word of God and giving it to people, bringing God's word to them. That's the prophet role. The right administration of the sacraments. Is the church rightly understanding the role of the sacraments? That's the, and lining up with the idea of the priest, the idea of the sacrifice that is represented. Not that this is really a sacrifice, but it points us back to the one sacrifice in Christ, right, and so on. Uh, to our right standing, you might say, well, what about baptism? Baptism is not about a sacrifice. Baptism is about your right standing with God. Think about what baptism says. I used to belong to this group of people. I was part of the world, but I've been washed by the blood of Christ, who's washed away the one thing that kept me from being in a relationship with God, which was my sin. It's washed away, and now I'm in this group of people. It's why we use it as the initiation rite. If you were an unbeliever, and when you're baptized, you are marked as being now within the church. If you are an infant, and you're baptized, you're being marked as not being just part of the world, but being part of the covenant community. So it's the idea of now belonging, and that belonging is because your status has changed. That's what righteousness is all about. What is your status before God? So the right administration of the sacraments lines up with the priestly office. And then the rule, uh, that of king, ruling over, shepherding people spiritually, 
is the proper exercise of discipline. It is the role, and there, so there's where you see the elders, but not just the ruling elders, the teaching elders together, both are elders in the church, uh, exercising discipline. Discipline, we all think of, when well, we do think of it, as a um, negative thing, as a formal action where somebody is disciplined with charges and everything else in the church. That's extraordinarily rare. Um, preaching is discipline, counseling. Have you ever kind of sat down in, uh, with me for counseling? Uh, or not just with me, but an elder who sits down and says, you know, brother, I think maybe you ought to consider this. Uh, all those things are acts of discipline. Just like when you have kids, you know, and you tell them, all right, remember to wash your hands. You're correcting, you're molding, you're shaping. That's discipline, right? Uh, we tend to think of discipline as when they tell you, no, mommy, you know, stick it in your ear. I'm not going to wash your hands. Okay, now something's going to come next. So that's, you know, that's the next step or a third or fourth step in discipline. But you get the idea. There's much more to it. So let's just say that when you have a true church, all three of these marks have to be present. Faithful preaching of the word, the right administration of the sacraments, and the proper exercise of discipline. And every one of those could be whole sermons. You know, what does it mean to be faithful in your preaching of the word? What does it mean that you're administering the sacraments rightly? Things like, you know, you're not thinking that it becomes a sacrifice or something. What does the proper exercise of discipline look like? But you get the idea behind all those. So uh, let me just wrap those up and say what happens. There's always been people, let's take these last two that we've looked at, conversion and a true church. There's always people that think that maybe you can pull off one without the other. Or you can leave one of those. So take your conversion. Is thinking and knowing the right things simply enough to be a true believer? Yes, no? No, why not? Why is not just simply knowing the right things enough? Yeah, there has to be a change of heart. Exactly. Exactly. You have to recognize your need of Christ. You have to trust in him. That results in a real change. Your conversion is just that. You know, that's the holiness turn. You, you know, there's a, there's a change in your behavior. Just knowing and acknowledging the truth. James tells us that the demons know all the right things. But that doesn't necessarily mean that, that they're, they're saved because they know it. So just knowing is not enough. How about feeling? There are tons of people who go to a church service or something and they're moved. And there's all sorts of, you know, maybe it's the great music or it's they really get behind this well-known speaker who's so charismatic or or just doesn't have to be charismatic per se, but just so effective, and they're moved by it. The emotion isn't enough. They have to know the right things. You end up up with all the zeal without knowledge. There has to be change in how they behave. Oh, absolutely. Remember, all three. Yeah, if you sit there and there's no change in your emotions, I'm a believer now, I believe, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, there, there needs to be, all, all three of those. Yeah, now, you know, does emotion in our culture of uh, anti-intellectualism, emotion now, uh, you know, can, can you, so-called Presbyterians of the frozen chosen and all, because you're so orderly, does it mean that you have to be running up and down the aisles and falling down and barking and, you know, all the stuff that happens and, uh, don't joke, I'll show you videos of Pentecostal churches and that's what's going on. I mean, the extreme ones. You know, a lot of others don't get like that. Um, 
But, you know, that kind of stuff. Uh, yeah, you have to have all those in place. That's a good question. If you can't hear what Phil's asking, he's saying, do I think that there's not enough? I would never dictate what enough is. If while you're singing and you're recognizing, you know, if we're being reminded again of the incredible grace that God has shown you and that doesn't move you, then, yeah, there's something wrong. But what does that mean? Does it mean that you cry? Does it mean that you lift up your hands? All those are appropriate. You know, I do think that there probably has been some, what's the word I'm looking at? Restraint, artificial restraint, because the idea that church is supposed to be respectable. So, you know, I can't lift up my hands. Even though it tells us in Scripture, lift up holy hands, you know, and all this. And I think we've confused the craziness with that. So, you know, I think it's appropriate. And some folks probably don't let that emotion out. Um, you know, Ed Clowney, who I just referenced today, when he taught us uh, on worship, you know, he was like, guys, it's, it's okay to move a little bit in your, in, your, in your pew, you know. And again, he says, you don't have to get up and start running all over the place, but he says, your whole body ought to be involved, that kind of stuff. And, and you know, what does that mean? I think I leave it up to a person to act according to how they feel comfortable. 1 Corinthians 14 says it must be done decently, worship must be done decently and in order. So, you know, where's the line on that? But, you know, you're, there's probably been some artificial restraint amongst traditional churches. I'll just say that, not just Reformed Presbyterian. I suspect, I suspect that, you know, there's, there's a cultural part to it. So asking somebody to act be, outside of what their a cultural norm would be wrong because you're binding a person's conscience but I suspect there's also some restraint. I mean, artificial restraint. You can go to, um, I mean, I grew up in a Hispanic Reformed church. I didn't attend English-speaking churches until I was 23. Attend doesn't become a member of. Uh, I had attended, like visiting one off. But, you know, they're very different, and they're still Reformed churches. But, yeah, there's a little bit more emotion shown, <laughs> that kind of thing. It's just the cultural stuff. Um, let me just finish then by saying... Uh, as we go through that on the marks of the church or, or even in your conversion, you can have people who then, take the last one, can you try to just be good? That's holiness. You know, I'm just going to try to be holy without conversion, without a change of heart, without trusting in Christ. It doesn't work either. What I'm trying to show you is you can't, you can't just grab one of these and run with it. You need all of them. And the same thing applies to churches. And we'll maybe just end with that. <clears throat> you see this in churches they're faithfully preaching the word of God, but they will not discipline. So you get people in the pews who've, uh, uh, well, in 1998, uh, I was in the middle of fundraising for our first time for MTW, and uh, uh, and while we did that, I was asked um, to be the interim pastor of a church that was troubled. I think we'll just leave it at that, troubled. Uh, their elders had never been trained. They had come into the denomination from another denomination, and all their elders had never received training. They were put into place because they were the bankers and the doctors and the lawyers, not because they were good shepherds. And I, I, I don't want to say not because they weren't godly men. I'm not saying that. But because they were important community members, which is what happens in a lot of churches. And there were other things, other issues. They had finally asked the pastor to leave after paying off two secretaries that he had hit on. They asked the secretaries to leave until they finally figured out maybe he's the problem. So they asked him to leave. <clears throat> so I step in there and um, I'm working with these guys. 
And uh, a couple comes to me and says, can you marry us uh, since you're the only pastor here for now? And we haven't had anybody to do premarital counseling and all that. Oh, sure, let's talk about it. So we, you know, do premarital counseling. And I'm still getting to know this congregation. I only go once a week. Well, Sunday and I preach. And I go one, once a week on Wednesdays to visit in hospital or homes or counseling or whatever. You know, just be available. And the rest of the time I'm out fundraising. And um, while we're doing premarital counseling, I find out that Mr. and Mrs. Jones, whatever, the, no, no, it's Jones, we got Joneses here. Uh, uh, Johnson, we don't have any Johnsons. Uh, or, or the soon-to-be Mr. and Mrs. Johnson. Um, he, uh, the, I've gotten to know them, but there's another lady over here on this side of the congregation, and I've gotten to know her a little. Well, he and, he and her were married and separated and divorced, and now they're sitting there, and the church did nothing. Uh, and it was an unbiblical divorce. And, um, you know, that kind of stuff. This plays out in so many churches. I mean, maybe they don't stay in the same pews. That was kind of funky. I don't think I've ever seen that uh, since then. But this idea that people behave in certain ways and the church is afraid to exercise discipline. And whenever you exercise, because, of course, that is, that's mean. And when you exercise discipline, then people get angry and they leave, Right? And has that not happened? Anybody who's been in Reformed churches knows that when, you know, let's take Mr. Johnson and he cheats on his wife and he leaves her and, and, and it's a clear just case of, you know, well, she's gotten too old and I, I'm looking for something younger or whatever. I mean, you know, something blatant, I'm, I'm just giving you, they're all wrong, I'm just giving you something that's so blatantly obvious. And what does he do? When we begin a discipline him, he gets up and he goes over to the Baptist church down the street where there's no discipline done, and then he just melds into the congregation, and that's the end of it. If every church did discipline, there'd be nowhere to go. Right? And by the way, I say Baptist. You know, the village is a Baptist church. Uh, and I don't know where they are today in this. I've heard there's been some major changes in their, in their practice, one way or the other, but uh, in the past, we've had people try to escape from the village to here. And we've had people from here trying to escape to the village. And we've called and talked to one another. It's like, no, no, no. Oh, you've got them now. And thankfully, it's not just PCA or OPC churches. There are churches that do practice discipline. And so we do sometimes communicate with them. And, and that could, But if all the churches were doing this, it would be you know to the good of the people. They wouldn't be able to just run off somewhere and escape. But... Anyway, so the point is, even true church, you can't just grab one or the other. Um, in fact, I think G.I. Williamson makes the case, like he talks about the Salvation Army. Did you know the Salvation Army is listed as a church? It's not just a charitable organization, but it's listed as a church. But is it really a true church? Doesn't do worship, doesn't do right administration of the sacraments. You know, so, anyway, there we are, Oop, ten, almost 10-10. So, uh, just like conversion, a true mark of a church, if it's to be a true church, needs all three marks. No church does them perfectly, but they do need to be present. All right? Questions, comments as we wrap this up? Okay, so the key thing in this question is it just shows you how comprehensive the concept of prophet, priest, and king is. As we go through different things in Scripture, you'll just see it again and again. It's built into the warp and woof of our creation, who we are as human beings, reflecting God, lost at our fall, restored in Christ, 
and should be manifest even when we are together corporately in the church. Does that make sense? Okay. No other questions or comments? Let's go ahead and, uh, and we'll close in prayer and we'll get ready for worship. Father in heaven, how thankful we are that Jesus is that perfect prophet and priest and king who truly brings us the word of God and in every way, in every way is the word of God who is that perfect sacrifice and the one who intercedes even now for us and the one who rules over all of creation, over the physical and spiritual, over nature, over men, over demons, over angels. And we're thankful, Father, that he is our Lord, that he is our Christ, our Savior. We uh, pray, Father, that we as individuals, uh, having been renewed in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, would be further conform to the image of Christ in these areas. And we pray, Father, that we as a church would manifest um, these marks of the church, that we might then uh, be, when we say the the phrase, truly human, uh, meaning truly being that which you created us for. We thank you for the work of Christ in us and what it's doing for us as a church. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.